ready for the word of God at this point. Your wood is wet. <laughs> you may want to dry it out a bit. Um, so I've got like four or five of these little pump sprayers in my garage. You guys have a few of those? You know, there's the bug killer one. There's the weed killer for lawns one. There's the weed killer for everything ones. And then, you know, there's the random one lying around. I don't know exactly what's in it. Well, my weed killer for everything, you know, the, the little uh, connection broke off. And so it doesn't hold air. So it doesn't work. Uh, well, you know what? I've got this one, this weed killer for lawns one. I'll just, I'll just kind of combine it, right? So I'll combine it in there. All the work I'm doing anyways is killing the weeds where I don't care. There's no grass. But, you know, as I'm walking through the flower beds and I'm walking across the lawn and getting to the, you know, the back weeds that are in the kind of the wooded area, drip, drip, drip. But what's the big deal, right? It's kind of mixed up. It's kind of diluted. It shouldn't be a big deal. Part of it's supposed to be for lawns anyways. Brown spot, brown spot, brown spot, brown spot. That's a spiritual principle. When we overly mix our lives with people that are far from God. When we bind our lives together with, on a level beyond friendship, beyond uh, influence, when we bind our lives with unbelievers, I think, what's the big deal? I'm a believer. It's going to be all right. And drip by drip by drip. Parts of our spiritual lives are affected by that truth. That's where we are in the text today. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, through the beginning of chapter 7. That's where we are in the text. You've got to be aware of partnerships with those who are lost. You've got to be aware of overly binding your life to people that are far from God. Or there will be brown spots. Maybe big, maybe small in your spiritual life because of it. Let's read the text and then we'll go from there. Chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord, what peace treaty has Christ with Belial? Or what portion, what inheritance, what share... Does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, boy, our hearts are a mess. And they get so tangled up in things that they shouldn't. And our affections stray from you. And our affections latch on to other people like they could give us what only you supply. Our affections latch on to stuff as if getting enough stuff could fill what only you can fill in our lives. 
And our affections latch onto status and power and accomplishment and success, no matter the cost. Because we want something that only you can, can, get, can give. And so, Lord, I pray for my own heart, and I pray for the hearts of my brothers and sisters. I pray that we would have godliness with contentment, because that's the only game. And I pray that this word would warn us, but I also pray that this word would spur us on to love and good works. That it would be the kind of promises we need to go to war for holiness in our lives. To regain and to rebegin our pursuit of you. And to reattach all of our affections and our highest affections to you. And so God, rescue us. We can't do that. Rescue us because my words could never do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we were looking at the passage just before this. And the, the kind of the primary warning is don't receive the grace of God in vain. Meaning, don't receive the grace of God without applying the grace of God in a way that actually changes you and bears fruit. And if it doesn't change you and if it doesn't bear fruit, there should be concern whether grace was ever received at all. And then he goes into his ministry and he says, here's what ministry looks like. Suffering, hardship, labor, the hard stuff, sleepless nights, shipwrecks. It looks like hard stuff met with faithful, enduring, godly character, given and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what it looks like to be a minister. And so if our lives and if our lives as Christians have no hardship, they have no labor, they have no agonizing sleepless nights, what's going on? Like This is what it's supposed to look like. And then do we meet the things of life, the hardships of life, because it's just part of the deal. Do we meet them with a kind of character that is steady and loving and compassionate and kind and genuine loving and truth speaking and filled with the Holy Spirit and has the power of God? Do we, do we meet our hardships with the kind of character that says, yes, God is real and the Holy Spirit's acted in my life? And since last week and then we moved to this week and it's kind of like, wait, what? How did we get from there to here? And so a lot of people have really debated and struggled, like, does this passage belong here? How did it get here? Why is it here? And so kind of here's my really brief stab, because you probably don't have that concern. You know, it's the kind of nerdy stuff I do in sermon prep. It's like, okay, why is it here? And so here's my stab. In chapter 5, verse 20, Paul is an ambassador who pleads with you, with the believers, to be reconciled back to God. Like, please come back. Please have a restored relationship with God. Please have that familiar relationship restored with God. And then chapter 6, verse 1, do not receive the grace of God in vain. And so one of the primary ways that he's warning us about in this text, that we might receive the grace of God in vain, that might influence us away from applied grace, that might influence us away from reconciliation, is partnerships with unbelievers in a way that taints and pollutes our own spiritual lives. And so beware of partnerships with those who do not follow Jesus. Now look at that word, don't follow Jesus. Really easy to be American and play Christian. All right? Okay. It is really easy to be American and play Christian. It's really easy to go to church occasionally. It's really easy to throw out a few spiritual words now and then. It's really easy, let go and let God. It's really easy to have a few platitudes pasted on your wall and play Christianity. In fact, it probably works for you. It's probably pretty profitable. 
It probably gets you connected to some relation, business relationships. It probably meets some of your needs. And so that's why the word follow is important. Don't be in partnerships with people. That don't show evidence and fruit of following Jesus and loving Jesus and passionate about Jesus. So let's look at it first. Our identity and values in Christ should be polar opposites to the lost. Our identity and values in Christ should be polar opposites to the lost. Now look, I get it. He's dreamy, right? He's got the perfect plaid, not the old school plaid like I've got from my high school days, but he's got that new trendy plaid. And maybe it's your thing. It's not mine, which is good. Maybe he's got the man bun and it works. Nothing wrong with man buns. If you have them, that's great. I'm just saying like, he's got it. Or maybe that's not your thing. And no, he doesn't have it. And you look at him across and he's over there on the other side of three tree. Wow. Is the first question that crosses your mind when you see that picture. That wonderful angelic picture. Does he know Jesus? And does he follow Jesus with his life? And guys, what's your, what's your measurement? What's your standard? Like you see her across. She's blonde or brunette or redhead. She's tall. She's short. She's whatever. She's beautiful. Wow. Is your first thought. Does she know and does she follow Jesus? And then, you know, you got your college degree. You got a little bit of age. You put a little savings away and you meet this guy who is an ace businessman. Everything he touches turns to gold. And he's like, let's be partners and start a business together. And you're like, if I do this, I'm going to be rich because this guy knows how to do the deal. If I do this, we're going to make it because everything this guy does make it. Plus, he's got all the capital we need to get through the hard stuff. Let's go. Is your first question. Does he know? And does he follow Jesus? Does he know and follow Jesus? Because here's the deal. If you don't, if you're, if you partner your lives with people that don't know and follow Jesus, there's always going to be a pulling apart of values. There's always going to be a war of identities in place. There's always going to be the rubber hits the road moments where you have to decide, will my values in Christ and my identity in Christ determine how I handle this problem or determine how I handle this business deal or determine how we handle this struggle, this season of our marriage or will something else? And let me promise you this. Marriage is hard enough with two believers in the equation. See, I got some amens on that one, right? (laughs) Marriage is hard enough when both people are running after Jesus even. It's still not easy for sinners to get together and selflessly love each other. And you multiply that by whatever number when you put a believer and an unbeliever in that. And there's no longer the common identity in Christ and the common values in the Christ and the common spirit that's going to say, Bubba, whack, upside the head. You need to go back and apologize. The Holy Spirit's not doing that when he's not inside of someone. And in business deals, same thing. There's going to be just times where it's hard enough for us to make it through this season, two believers walking side by side with a common spirit, common identity, common values. And so think about those times, those seasons for you who have been in business a while or are business owners. Think about those seasons where it got lean because they come. What are the temptations in that moment that would rub up against and would be so much harder if it, if it was if side by side with somebody that did not share 
your common identity in Christ. And that's exactly what he's warning against in this text. That our values, who we are in Christ, should be so different from the world that we would never think of hitching ourselves and binding ourselves and contracting ourselves and partnering ourselves with those who don't know God. Let's look at it in the text. So the passage is bracketed by two commands. Command one, do not be unequally yoked. Command two in chapter seven, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. So the passage is about separation from, set apart to God and set apart from the world. So that our affections and our devotions are untainted towards God. And the point of the passage is that there's certain relationships that are going to have a drip, drip, drip negative effect on our spiritual lives. And so we have to be careful of those. We have to be aware of those. And so do not be unequally yoked. What does that mean? So the imagery of unequally yoked is, you know, in agricultural days, there's this big bar that runs across and there's these little loops under it and you stick a work animal on one side and then you stick a similar work animal on the other side so that they each pull their own weight, so that they pull in the same direction, so that they pull at the same speed, so that the strain is divided equally among the two things. And so when we're talking about being unequally yoked, the picture of, uh, in the Old Testament when it shows up, it's a very rare word by the way, in the Old Testament, when it shows up, it, it talks about, like, don't, don't have animals of different species breed together. Or it talks about, don't put an ox and a donkey in the same harness, right? One's much more powerful and slower plodding, and one is much weaker and much smaller. So here's a picture. I was talking about this with uh, our family around the table the other day, and I was like, so imagine we've got this harness, we've got this yoke, and dad gets in on one side and he shoulders it, and then Christopher gets in on the other side. That's the picture, right? All the strain is going to be on me. All the movement's going to be on me. All the, the effort is going to be on me to do the work. Unequally yoked. And so when you take as someone who is a follower of Jesus and you put someone who is not a follower of Jesus and you put them into the same harness, there is going to be a different power. And there's going to be a different direction that both are trying to pull. And so, you know, best case scenario, they just don't pull their own weight. Like Christopher. But the more likely scenario is this. They are going to pull in a different direction than you. And so you're trying to pile the straight path of following Jesus, the straight path of pursuing him. And this other person is going to just take you. It might be just a little bit off the row. It might be way off the row. Do not be unequally yoked. Don't attach your life in a, in a in a deeply bound partnership way to people that don't know Jesus. Because they are going to at least be dead weight, spiritually speaking, following Jesus speaking, or they're going to they're gonna bend the path for you. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And so we got to ask the question then, what is it forbidding? Like, what is it talking about? So what we know it's not talking about is being separated from and isolated from a lost world. That is not what it's saying. Because Jesus said it this way, you should be in the world, right where the world is, but not of the world. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it's talking about church discipline, and it's talking about you should withdraw yourselves from brothers who will not, who harden their hearts against the discipline of the church. And he's like, you know, if they're, you know, immoral or drunks or whatever the list is. And so he's like, withdraw from that. And they're like, okay, let's do it. But they withdrew from the lost world instead of the saved world that was pretending to be saved. And so he's like, wait, correction here. 
I'm not saying that you should withdraw from unbelievers who sin because unbelievers sin. And so if you're going to withdraw from unbelievers who sin, you're going to just have to leave the world. That's not what I'm talking about. It's like I'm talking about people who claim to be believers who do this. And so what we know this passage is not talking about is it is not talking about an isolationism. Let's bar the doors of the church. Let's sanitize everything. Let's make sure our kids don't have to experience any of that yucky law stuff that goes around. You know, let's, let's keep them safe from the world's music and let's keep them safe from the world's, you know, the words that the world uses, their icky cuss words that they use. And yeah, we should to a degree. Like we should protect our kids as much as we can. But we shouldn't bar the doors of the church and bar the doors of the kingdom so that you have to sanitize yourself to come meet the, the Jesus, who is the only one that can cleanse you and save you, right? And so it's not talking about that. But what is it warning us about? It's warning us about getting into some sort of partnership, some sort of binding relationship, some sort of peace accord relationship where we weave our lives together in a way that can't really be untangled with those who don't know and follow Jesus. That's what it's warning us against. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so he walks out and he's like, you know, like I said, I know he's cute. I guess. I don't look at those things. I know she's great. I know he's a great businessman. Do they know and follow Jesus? Is that your primary concern? Is my primary concern? Because let's just think about it this way. If you are dating someone and you don't know their spiritual condition... Before the first date or by the end of the first date, something's wrong. Stop. Ask immediately. And I would say for our youth and for our college students and for our singles, if there is anything outside of please follow Jesus with your whole life, be saved, be converted, anything outside of that message I would give you, if there was one other thing I could just plant in your life and say, don't walk away from this. It would be do not go near a dating relationship with someone that doesn't follow Jesus. And I mean evidentially follow Jesus. Like there's something about their life that actually says, that bears fruit, that looks like they know Jesus. Because it's easy to pretend. I cannot tell you how many times I've sat in my office across from people who are so deeply grieved. Because he was cute. And he was dreamy. And they got married. And they had kids. And then all of a sudden, one is pulling a direction that's not towards Jesus. Not towards the values they want for their kids. And it comes and they have to grieve that. Do not date and you will never marry an unbeliever. But I think it's also talking about business partnerships and business ventures. Not that you would never work for an unbeliever. Not that you would never uh, find ways that you would have to associate. That's part of being in the world. But are you going to bind your life together in a way that's partnering or, or contracting together where you can't really untie the fabric of the binding without making a mess? Don't weave the fabric of your business life together with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked. And then he gives a bunch of reasons. That's the rest of the passage. Here are the reasons you shouldn't do that. Why? For. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? You see polar opposites. Righteousness, lawlessness, light, darkness, Christ, Bilal, or worthlessness, or Satan. Like, there couldn't be any more different. 
And what he's talking about is the identity you have is in Christ. The identity you have is you are the light of the world. The identity that you have is you are righteous through the work of Jesus. That's who you are. That's what you value. And that's what you do. Because who you are is what you desire. And what you desire is what you do. You are in Christ. You desire Christ. You do what Christ would do. Like that's the Christian life. You are righteous. So you desire righteousness. So you do righteousness. And the other side of the equation is true. If you don't know Jesus, there's a lawlessness. My way becomes the law. And if my way happens to line up with church sometimes, then I do church. If my way happens to line up with not, I don't. What possible partnership can there be between these two things? When somebody desires righteousness, how can they partner with someone that desires unrighteousness? Maybe we don't desire righteousness quite enough. What fellowship does light have with darkness? The word for fellowship is not the word for let's go eat a meal in the room a few doors down. The word for fellowship is the weaving together of lives. Right, And so fellowship is when we, as believers, take our lives and we weave them together with one another, eating daily and worshiping together daily. It's the word that they use when they, they took all their goods and they shared them in common because we've so woven our lives together that our stuff is our stuff. And if you need it, then I'm going to help you with it. Kind of like when lightning strikes a house and somebody decides to leave a home-cooked meal and show up with a Wi-Fi router. Didn't happen to work because it burned up my phone system too. Like, my life, my time, my stuff, how can I help you with it? And that's what it looks like to fellowship. And so how can we fellowship between light? You know that First John says, God is light. He's perfect, blazing purity. He's an illuminator. He exposes what's dark and covered. That's God. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and he stands up in the feast. And what does he say? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And then he starts teaching about you and me. You are the light of the world. And so do your good deeds and let people see your good deeds so that in the day of the visitation they can see them and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Nobody takes light and hides it under a basket. That's not the designed intent. And so if God is the God of light and Jesus is the light of the world, then he's made you by the work of the gospel in your life the light of the world. How can you weave your life together with darkness? How can you weave a covering basket around the light that he placed in you? Do you see, do you see how it just can't happen? It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't work. And that's Paul's point. As he goes through pairing after pairing after pairing. What accord does Christ have with Belial? Do you know you're in Christ? It's one of the primary New Testament words for the believer. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. You are so intimately identified with him that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. You belong to Jesus. You are united with Jesus. And if your life is identified with Jesus and united to Jesus, then what possible accord, what possible treaty could be signed with Belial? That's, it, it's a word that means worthlessness. And then in the periods between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it was a word that became the name for Satan. And so what is unity with Jesus, identified with Jesus, have to do with sons of Satan. And you see, he's, he's not kind of saying, well, maybe, maybe there's some middle ground here. 
Like the polar opposites, the diametrically opposed groups. Like you can't be light and dark. You can't be Christ and Satan. What portion does a believer share? What inheritance, what final inheritance is given that's shared between the believer and unbeliever? And there's none. And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? The place of God's presence. The place where God is truly worshipped. The genuine, heart-flowing worship of God. That's the temple represents. What does it possibly have in common with an idol? The false worship of God. Something that steals our affections from God. Something that gains our worship that should be due to God. How can they be together? And they can't. They can't. So if there's any single message that I can give you, maybe it's business partnership, but if you're youth, if you're college, if you're single, if there's anything I can beg you, obey this word. Don't obey it because... You're a legalist. Don't obey it because uh, you obey it because you love Jesus so much that you can't imagine anything taking you from Him. You can't imagine anything in your life pulling away from devotion to Him. And if you don't love Jesus that way, if you don't yearn for Jesus that way, then get on your face before God and beg Him to re-give you the heart that does. So instead of blending a little bit of shady light with darkness, ask God to blaze again in your heart so that you burn for Jesus and you're the light of Jesus for the world. Beg for that. But don't be unequally yoked. Don't bind your life together with someone that is far from God. Don't do it. Don't do it. Second step. We are God's dwelling place and God's children who must be separate from the world. So he's continuing to give us the reasons. We are God's dwelling place and we are God's children who must separate from the world. You guys all know Romeo and Juliet? Like, God, literature. Out of school. I've already passed that class. I don't want to deal with it. All right, so Romeo and Juliet, we've got two families that are in a blood feud for generations. Right? And since Shakespeare wrote it, it is a tragedy, by the way. Uh, so you've got this blood feud between two families, but the kids saw each other across three tree one day. And they're like, wow. And she was like, wow. And they started dating and they fell in love. And then the fam- families find out. And the war intensifies and it heats up and it's a tragedy. Because one ends up dead and the other ends up committing suicide if I remember it right it's a tragedy our family is in a bitter blood feud with the world's family difference being though ours is pure and right and holy and desires for life to flourish and desires to rescue people and their family desires darkness and and to destroy people and to take life going to be a tragedy if we look across the room and think wow and don't think what family are you in and look i mean if you're youth or if you're college you're young they're young like you're not looking for the pinnacle of spiritual maturity with expert theologian attached right you're looking for the 
baby fruit evidence, like they know Jesus and the baby fruit evidence that they're following Jesus and like it shows up in some ways. The fruit's probably small. That's okay. Is it there? That's the question. Like y'all are going to grow together. You're going to mature together. Hopefully, you know, your spiritual lives will enhance as you grow and, and spend more time with Jesus and hopefully your relationship also leads to that end. So that, you know, the point isn't that you're looking for the pinnacle, but the point is that you're looking for that evidence because when the world... When God's family and the world's family bind together, some version of tragedy, and it may be small drops of tragedy, like my yarn, it may be massive tragedy. And so that's the warning. Here we go. He goes into a list of Old Testament verses to support this, just like these oppositions support it. We are the temple of the living God. This isn't the temple. This isn't the sanctuary. You know what is? You are. You're the sanctuary. You're the temple. You're the dwelling place of God. And so God's place is no longer a building. God's place is no longer an address. God's place is God's people. And so where does the presence of God dwell in you? Where does the presence of God dwell in us? You are the temple of the living God. Ephesians 2, we are being built up into a spiritual house that houses the uh, presence of God and the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Whoever destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 1 Corinthians 6, you individually are the temple of God. And the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, of the Spirit. We are God's temple. We are God's place, which means... When you turn the lights out here and you walk out into the world, church isn't closed for a week. Church goes mobile for the week. And then church gathers back up, refreshes, worships, encourages, weeps, rejoices, and then we go back out and the church leaves and goes mobile again. You are the temple. You are the temple. You see how it's a big problem if the temple binds itself What is the temple of something else? And then he goes through these verses to reinforce it. I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and and they shall be my people. And this is a passage that comes out of, of Leviticus chapter 26. And in Leviticus 26, it opens up, flee idolatry, avoid idolatry, hate idolatry. Follow the commands of God. And if you do that, if you reject your idolatry and if you embrace running after God, which is what it would mean to obey his commandments. If you embrace running after God, then I will make my dwelling among you. And I will walk through the midst of you. So think about it. In the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle, a tent they built. When it was built, the glory cloud of God fell on it such that ministry couldn't happen for the time. Because the presence of God is in the middle of his people. And then the temple was built. And they consecrated the temple and the glory cloud of God fell on the temple and it was so heavy that the ministers could not enter, the priests could not enter to minister and God was dwelling in the midst of his people. And then we meet Jesus and he's like, destroy this temple in three days I'll raise it back up. And he wasn't talking about the building, he was talking about himself because God is now in the midst of his people. And so when he says, you are the temple, he's saying, God is in the midst of you individually and God is in the midst of us together. God's presence is in the middle of God's people. 
And as we run from idolatry and we run after God, his presence flourishes and dwells among us. And that's what Leviticus is teaching us to reinforce. Don't bind yourself to those that are far from God. And then he goes on from a passage in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing. And so Israel was a bunch of boneheads just like, I'm going to say it. You guys are a bunch of boneheads and I'm a bonehead. Because we know God and yet we drift from God, right? We know God and yet we run after stuff that we know ain't going to do it for us. We're all boneheads. Well, in this case, Israel is in exile because they kept running after other gods. They were unfaithful to God. And so they're in exile. And the command of return and the command that you aren't even going to have to run in fear. I'm going to just walk with you and you're going to carry the things of God back home. And that's what God promises. And so in the middle of that, he's like, go out from them. And as you go out, carrying the holy things of God, do not let what is around you defile you. Don't let what's around you defile the holy things. Go out from them. Be separate from them. Don't let what's holy be defiled by its surroundings. And then he uses that for you and for me as well. Don't let the world you have to walk through and don't let the relationships that are part of your life defile what's inside of you therefore go out from their midst and be separate and don't touch anything and then look at this then i will welcome you you see these passages are warnings to you that if you embrace idolatry the presence of god will dwindle in your midst or it may say that the presence of god was not there in the first place it's a warning That if you play with sin, if you play with relational brokenness, if you play with hardened hearts, be warned. But it's also promises. It's also really good news. If you do it, I'll dwell right in the middle of where you are. God's presence will be right in your midst. And I'll be your father. And you'll be my son. And you'll be my daughter. And you'll be my dearly loved child. It's a warning. But it's also a promise. We'll get to that just in just a second. And so do not let what's around you defile what is inside of you. And the last step as we walk through this. We pursue holiness because of God's rich promises to us. We pursue holiness because of God's rich promises to us. Think about some of the promises of God you know. Because that is God's arsenal to fight for holiness. You're adopted. You are dearly loved. You are righteous. You are justified. That innocent. You're declared innocent. You are loved in a way that nothing could ever separate you from it. There is a God who works all things together for good to those who love him and are called to his purpose. Jesus himself went away to prepare a place for you so that you could come and dwell with him and his father forever and forever. Think of the promises you know. Have you stored them in your heart? Because it's only in storing them in your heart that holiness can come out in your life. Look at this last verse. Since, based on what I just said... Since we have these promises, you're my temple, I dwell in you. Since you have these promises, I'm your father, 
You're my son. I love you. Since you have these promises, cleanse yourself. Since I'm your God, cleanse yourself. Since you're in Christ, cleanse yourself. Since you are light, act like light. Since you have these promises, beloved, dearly loved one, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. Everything that pollutes your body, everything that comes into your outer life, everything that is actually seen and heard, everything that's defiling by your words and defiling by your actions, let the promises of God cleanse you from that, the pollution of your outer life. And let the promises of God cleanse you from in your spirit, everything that pollutes your inner life. What does your mind latch onto and dream about? What does your affections pursue after? What are the inner thoughts and dialogue of your heart? And where does the rich, clean water of the Spirit need to flow to wash pollution out of your soul? Polluted thoughts and polluted attitudes and polluted motives. See, because it's out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, right? So polluted words come from polluted hearts. Where's the pollution in your life? Let the promises of God cleanse. Let your belonging to God cleanse. Let the presence of God cleanse. Let the fatherhood of God adopting you into his family cleanse you from all of it. And, that's the negative, remove defilement, the positive, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Let your worship of God mature holiness in your life. Let your awe of God, your stunned amazement at His glory and His beauty mature your holiness. That's what He's saying. You have these promises, cleanse yourself. You have these promises, let the wonder of who God is and what He has accomplished mature holiness in your life. Work itself out in righteousness in your life. And so it's our set-apartness, our holiness that is both our, our relationships can taint that. It can taint our ability to run after holiness. It can taint our ability to run after God and experience the joy of His presence. It can taint our ability to run and follow after Him versus walk or crawl or turn away. But it's also our own inner life, our own pursuit of holiness, our own embracing of the promises. They can help us run towards Him, pursue Him, find His presence in the fullness of joy there, or pull away. Because little drop of pollution after little drop of pollution makes the water of our soul undrinkable. Our relationships, our partnerships, who we bind our life to, is going to influence our spiritual life. I would tell you, just attach your life to as many people who love Jesus and help you love Jesus as possible. And then together, free from the world, go run after the world. Go run after spreading redemption and life and flourishing everywhere you go. But do it bound together with people that love him. A few practical things really quickly as we close. Avoid dating, marriage, and partnerships with those who are lost. Can't be any more simple. Doesn't need a lot of elaboration. Although you're thinking you just elaborated on it for 40 minutes, dude. 
Okay, so it's had its elaboration. Second, we are God's temple. The holy things of God belong to you and me and everybody. That is his. So wherever you go this week, you are taking the presence of God with you. You're taking the redeeming work of God with you. You're taking the ability of God to work through your life into the lives of people around you with you. You're the temple. Yes, that means I need to clean up because there's little idols dwelling in the temple of God and they need to be torn out. But it's also this awesome responsibility that I get to go sit. I wouldn't do it, but you get to go sit at McDonald's and like the whole, God's presence is in McDonald's and the temple is there. Church is there, right? And then pursue holiness. Again, we've talked about that. What are you filling the water of your soul with? Is it purifying it or is it polluting it? Run after holiness because running after holiness is running after God and finding God. There's nothing better. The one in his presence is the fullness of joy. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that feeble words from me would have powerful words from you to warn my own life of what I allow in and what I allow to pollute it. But it would also warn my friends and my brothers and sisters in this room. God, that they wouldn't be captured by the flutter of emotions of a moment. They'd be captured by you. And they wouldn't settle for anything less than what you desire to give them. What you would love to give them. And so, Father, I pray, just warn us. Warn us as we harden our hearts in sin. Warn us as we let our affections grab hold of something else. And then free us, God, with your promises. Set a bomb over our idols with the promises of the true and living God. God, would you do that for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.